Hey everyone, it's uh, 8 p.m. Eastern. This is a kind of an impromptu episode of Colin. Uh, if you came over from the podcast or if you got my notice from the podcast, uh, I'm dealing with all kinds of madness and shenanigans today as I'm, uh, I'm leaving town for a few days. I'm going to be visiting what's left of Seattle. And, uh, that was interrupted all this, all that shit that you do to, you know, when you're traveling to get everything in line, uh, just got like overwhelmed because my AC went out today <laughs> and, uh, I posted a photo. It topped at 84, uh, before they finally came in and they finally got, they figured out what the problem was and they finally fixed it. But because I've just, I wasn't able to get all the shit done because of that. And, uh, I just, I ran out of time hiding bodies. So, um, I thought I would at least try to make it up here. I know this isn't the same as like a subscriber paid podcast, but, uh, it's, this is the best content creation that I can give you, uh, for the night. And there is a lot going on. So I didn't, uh, just want to blow this off. So this is going to be a little bit different tonight. Um, I'm going to treat this maybe more like, a the traditional podcast. So I, I have a lot of stuff in front of me, so I may go for 20 minutes here. And, uh, and then, like I said, well, if you came over from uh Patreon, the versus media podcast, I usually do sub or comments questions for about another 30. So I'm going to kind of maybe do that tonight. So if you do want to join in, if you do want to comment question, just jump into the queue and, uh, I'll probably take you guys in order. And uh, this will just kind of hopefully be about an hour, hour and a half. So again, I do I do apologize for not being able to record today. It's just like I said, um, I, I hit Taylor Lorenz levels of insanity heat uh, today. That's all I was thinking about. I'm like, man, if I hit 90, she's going to be right at home here. Um, so again, I appreciate your patience. And I, I just said, you know, I, I'm going to have to do something for you guys. So uh, I thought I'd jump on. And so again, thanks for joining uh, I wanted to talk primarily about this drone strike that took out pretty much the current leader and the kind of godfather of Al-Qaeda, uh, Al-Zahari or whatever the guy's name is. It's not in front of me with the pronunciation. Um, where is it? I'm in Al-Zahari. Uh, if you've been paying attention to Al-Qaeda for the last few years after uh, we dumped uh, Osama's body in the ocean... Um, riddled with hundreds of bullet holes, then this guy was pretty much the guy you've seen in all the videos for Al-Qaeda. He's kind of the guy who took over, and I don't know what was there was left to take over. I don't know what they were planning. They haven't really had too many successful attacks other than, you know, small attacks since then, since bin Laden. Um, but, I mean, this guy's roster, if you've read about him, is as bad as it gets. He's involved with pretty much every, every major terror operation against the United States, going back to the Clinton years, which fostered a lot of the attitude. Bill Clinton's inability to act on some of those events is what fostered them to get bold ideas like, hey, maybe we can hijack some airplanes. I'm talking about the USS Cole, which was treated like a criminal investigation and not a terror attack. I'm talking about the 93 World Trade Center bombing. Uh, which was treated like a criminal investigation and not a terror attack. And uh, there's also the famously where Clinton had bin Laden in his sights and didn't give the go-ahead. And that was largely attributed to Janet Reno, who said, you know, you can't drone strike him in a, or you can't hellfire missile him in a foreign country uh, because it'll cause all sorts of bad press and da-da-da, and Clinton listened to her. And, well, we all know what happened after that. Um I've been posting this quote from Charlie Wilson's war as it goes from, um, uh, I'm going to pull this up, uh, and, uh, read it to you. Cause if you haven't seen this movie, this is kind of my attitude with the events of this drone strike. Um, where at the end of, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman plays, uh, a CIA agent and he's kind of a composite. His name is Gus, uh, Avrakatos. And it's a great role. Uh, I like Charlie Wilson's war. She has everything, has politics and everything, even if, you know. And he has a uh, quote at the end that reminded me of this drone strike. And uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, I'm just going to read it. So it's obviously Tom Hanks' uh, Charlie Wilson. And it's about how the U.S. funded 
the, the Mujahideen and, and uh, the brave soldiers of Mujahideen in, uh, in Afghanistan taking on the Soviets. And that, of course, led to, you know, the crazies rolling in and establishing a, a safe haven. And that's what became of the Taliban in Afghanistan. And that's what fostered terror camps. And again, we know how that went. And he says to uh, at the end where Charlie Wilson's celebrating uh, the defeat of the Soviets and you know, there's this big party and Gus is kind of out on a balcony and he's not really celebrating. And Charlie Wilson comes over and just says, uh, you know, you know, what's, what's going on, whatever. It's just, this is a great thing. You did a great, whatever. And Gus tells him a story and I'm just going to read this. He says, there's a little boy and on his 14th birthday, he gets a horse and everybody in the village says, how wonderful the boy got a horse. And the Zen master says, we'll see. Two years later, the boy falls off the horse and breaks his leg. And everyone in the village says, how terrible. And the village Zen master says, we'll see. Then a war breaks out, and all the young men have to go off and fight, except the boy can't because his legs are all messed up, and everybody in the village says, how wonderful. Charlie Wilson finishes off by saying, we'll see. And the reason this reminded me of, uh, of this current situation is because of the way our media is treating this as uh, in some left circles, the Intercept and some other websites is this is the end of the war on terror. This, the official Biden taking this guy out, Biden just ended the Afghanistan war, as well as ending the war on terror with taking this guy out in the middle of Kabul. And when I read this and I saw this instantly, uh, I immediately had questions about this. What was the leader of Al-Qaeda doing on a balcony in a Taliban advisor's home in the middle of the capital city, Kabul, Afghanistan. After Joe Biden said a year ago, roughly about a year ago, that um, the Taliban was gone, or I'm sorry, Al-Qaeda was gone out of the country. They're not there anymore, and therefore our mission is over. That was later corrected by the Pentagon, saying, well, no, they're, they're still there, but they didn't somehow think that they were in the middle of the city. And you had uh, John Avalon in particular from CNN kind of hailing this as, uh, as kind of the great end of this. And this was a huge accomplishment for Joe Biden, which it is. Biden deserves credit for pulling the trigger on this guy, um, as do, you know, Obama getting bin Laden and Trump getting Soleimani and the other uh, ISIS leader with the dog. Um, which if Trump, if Trump would have had that dog on the campaign trail, he probably would have won. That was a huge misstep. Um, but as soon as it started, uh, news started rolling in about this guy and where they got him and with what, and they hit him with the, the new Ginsu bomb, which Andrew Styles at Free Beacon has a great profile of the Ginsu drone. It doesn't really cause an explosion. It comes down and the knives open up and it just shreds a dude. It's also the drone that was used to kill eight kids uh, in the retaliatory strike after uh, the terror attack last year at the airfield as we were trying to get rid of, uh, as we were trying to get, get our people out and some of their people out and people ended up falling off wheel wells. So John Avalon says from CNN, and if, I'm sorry if I'm breaking, I mean, this is the thing about when I'm, I have all of these tabs in front of me and I'm doing this live when I can't break, but he says, that's what makes this, I think, such a profound moment for the country and just for everyone who lived through 9-11. CNN John Avalon reacts to President Biden's speech announcing the death of al-Qaeda leader. I'm an Al-Zawar here in the gravity of the news. And I don't like to go and compare things like this between presidents because every situation is different. Obama going after bin Laden, Trump going after Soleimani and, and all of these. These are all different situations. The intelligence is different. The landscape is different. But uh, if you notice, there, there's a question in all of this. That not only is not being asked, but the press is attacking Republicans for asking it. And that is, why was the godfather of Al-Qaeda just chilling on a balcony in the middle, middle of Kabul after the president said they were no longer there? And this is going to be the issue. And the press is going to basically Benghazi, Benghazi, Benghazi this. When the Republicans investigate this, which they will. And uh, they'll call for a hearing on this or at least, you know, classified hearing where they get intelligence that says, hey, wait a second. Um, he's not supposed to be there. This isn't like he was taken out in, the, in you know, in the caves of Tora Bora or in the countryside or, you know, a, a random hut just in the middle. No, he's <laughs> my dude is just, you know, having his moment on the balcony in the middle of Kabul, just seeing the sights. We also know how this would have been covered 
probably if it was the last guy. And we know because John Avalon told us. We're at a thing called a reality check. Avalon looks at three misleading lines about the Soleimani airstrike. CNN's John Avalon examines the Trump administration's defense of the U.S. drone strike that killed Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. And this goes back to just the reflexive need that whatever Trump did, we just we have to be opposed to it. Whatever it was, we're, we're opposed to it. Um, John Carl was one of the worst people on this. I'll get to him in a moment. I do want to read a tweet from uh, Andrew Desidero. He's a political reporter. He's okay. He's a congressional reporter. And he made a couple of uh, astute observations, which is the White House is about to get a lot of negative news coverage as the one-year anniversary of the Afghanistan withdrawal approaches. He says, today's news will certainly help negate that. But the fact that al-Qaeda's leader was in Kabul confirms officials' worst fears about the Taliban's ties to al-Qaeda. And again, he was in the house of a, of a high-ranking Taliban official. So one of two things is happening here. Uh, we, we have what we thought was Saddam Hussein and, you know, you know Saddam Hussein hiding out, uh, which was one of the justifications. He was, he was sheltering al-Qaeda operatives and whatever. Or the Taliban knew about this and they were sheltering him. And we are right back to where we were prior to 2001. We'll see is the whole point of this. So you have the press kind of taking a victory lap on this. They're calling it the end of the war on terror. Um, you have uh, several in the White House, and I'll quote John, Kir- uh, John Kirby today, uh, spoke with reporters, and I have a couple of quotes of that. And if this was a podcast, if this was recorded, I would drop in the clips, but obviously we're kind of freewheeling it here tonight. Um, and they're sitting here doing this kind of touchdown dance over this and saying, you know, hey, we got, we got the leader of Al-Qaeda, whatever, and um, I'm, I'm not even going to hedge it with, you know, another old man just h- h- hiding out in the city. Um, it's a symbolic strike, and but it's a good one. Um, but again, we'll see. Peter Ducey today had some questions for Kirby, and I think it's interesting. And I think I don't know if it was Town Hall or if it was Fox who made the observation that Karine Jean Pierre, out of her like 39 appearances in front of the press, has had somebody with her for 26 of those. Uh, someone who's either taking over or assisting her or just shadowing her, whatever like that. And I think that that's interesting optics and for obvious reasons. And I think it's interesting optics as well that when Biden makes Kamala Harris stand behind him and that's what Obama did to Biden. If If you recall, presidents never really did that. You never really had George Bush with Dick Cheney hovering behind him. Um, you know, unless Dick Cheney of course had his hand in his back and pulling the strings. Um, but you never really saw vice presidents hanging out with their president during speeches. Well, Obama started doing that with Biden and then Trump sort of did it with Pence a little bit and a lot, but the Trump would push Pence off to the side. Cause you know, put the camera on me. And now you have Biden who just has Kamala Harris standing back there quietly. And so now you also have the first African-American and lesbian, can't forget that, press secretary, who it seems like whenever shit gets hard, someone has to come in and relieve her. Um, It's kind of like the backup press secretary. It's like when Nathan Fielder was on Conan O'Brien and brought out Susan Sarandon as the backup guest in case things went bad. Um, But Kirby was the guy who talked today. And had some interesting questions. Uh, Ducey says, quote, you guys gave a whole country to a bunch of people who are on the FBI's most wanted list. What did you think was going to happen here? And Kirby said, I take issue with the premise that we gave an entire country to a terrorist group. Well, John, you did. And you did it in 11 days. It was kind of unprecedented speed at which the Taliban just rolled back into into Kabul. Um, Ducey had a few other questions. And like I said, apologize if uh, you hear tapping. I just I have fifty tabs open, which is this is my life when I record. Um, and I'm try- I'm just trying to find these. Uh, Peter Ducey also addressed to John Kirby the fact that Biden said Al Qaeda was gone, and he said uh, he said that he goes uh, he, the president last year said that uh, Al Qaeda was gone from Afghanistan, and now here you are bragging that you're taking out the Al Qaeda leader. And Kirby said, we talked about the fact that Al-Qaeda had a presence of Afghanistan, but small. Well, that was the Pentagon, which is where John Kirby is the press secretary over usually. That was correcting Joe Biden. And 
this is what I've always said is whenever Biden goes out there and shoots his mouth off, <laughs> you know, whatever, he's always corrected or someone else has to come in and clean up the mess. And it's not even just gaffes, it's policy. We saw what he said about Taiwan, which is obviously in the news for Pelosi, where Biden said, yeah, we'll defend Taiwan militarily. And then the whole administration just, you know, went to DEFCON and slid down their bat poles. And they had to come out and say, no, 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 change, no nothing's changed, nothing's changed. And it's real interesting because I've never seen this. We saw a little bit with Trump about clarifications and things because that's who Trump is. But Biden is like a 40-year polished politician. And so you have the admin consistently coming out and, you know, rolling out the Easter bunny to get Joe Biden back on message. And then you hear clips of Joe Biden where he, you know, behind the scenes, he, he he's afraid that he looks weak. Well, it's because you do look weak, sir. Every time you roll out there, they have your admin has to, you know, either correct you or shoot you with a tranquilizer dart. Um, so, again, Kirby had a few of these things today where Ducey's like, hold on a second. You're, you're sitting here taking a victory lap. And he said, you know, Biden had talked about the over the horizon Al Qaeda strategy or the Taliban strategy, which is um, we'll, we'll keep our warships at sea. And then if we have to, we'll launch drones and we'll take guys out. And so that certainly kind of looks to be sort of a success in that in that way. But again, we'll see. Um, so this is where, like I said, you have the media, I think, doing a, a preemptive strike <laughs> on this narrative. And I think that this is something that, again, is probably going to come back to bite them in the butt. Um, and I also think that people where Joe Biden's approval rating started to kind of go down the tube was around this time last year with Afghanistan. Um, when, you know, he pulled everything out, left all of the equipment there for the Taliban to take. And, you know, some of it made its way to Iran and some, you know, some probably made to Syria. And, uh, and this is one of what we thought would be one of our worst fears is that the Taliban is not going to abide by this agreement. And there was, uh, again, John Kirby said that today. And so as did uh, Tony Blinken, um, who basically said, and this is interesting, John Cooper of Heritage pulled up the old clip of Saki, where John, uh, John Kirby and Tony Blinken said that this was a gross violation of the Doha agreement, which was the agreement between the United States and the Taliban that they would not harbor terrorists, that they would restore order and they would let girls go to school and whatever. None of that, of course, is happening. And of course, you get this uh, this passive voice shaming of the Taliban, like they're, uh, you know, an eight-year-old who did something wrong or took a cookie or, you know, did something. And uh, John Cooper pulled this clip of Saki from an old tweet, and this is great. He said, uh, John Kirby, when, when he was asked, you know, do you believe the Taliban is harboring him or harboring Al-Qaeda? And they said, well, that we do think that they knew about him, uh, but that's a gross violation. Tony Blinken called it a gross violation of the Doha Act. And then John Kirby went as far as to say, quote, uh, the Taliban has a choice. They can comply with the Doha Agreement or they can choose to keep going down a different path. And if they go down a different path, it's going to lead to consequences. Well, John Cooper from Heritage pulled this quote and we saw that Jen Psaki did this a lot last year. Quote, the Taliban has, also has to make an assessment about what they want their role to be in the international community. <laughs> and this is kind of, this is just what they do. It's, they're very disappointed in the Taliban right now. They're very, they're not upset. They're just, they're very disappointed. And uh, Cooper had another great tweet. Hey, Taliban dudes, you have a choice. Don't screw this up. And it says, uh, runs over Kabul. Allows top al-Qaeda leader to leave in downtown apartment. And, hey, Taliban, you dudes have a choice. Don't screw it up. And this is, again, where I think a lot of people are going to see this. And it's like, not only did you give the entire country away in 11 days, you didn't answer questions about it. Remember all those famous images of Biden turning his back and walking away. That started because they didn't want to expose him to a questions about Afghanistan. And that's when Joe Biden's presidency really began to tank. Um, was over that because even if people were kind of war weary and they didn't like being in Afghanistan, whatever, uh, we're still pretty patriotic people and we don't like seeing our military tuck their tails and run out of a country and then only have it to be taken over by the people that we just tried to expel from in 11 days. Not only that, now it looks like that Al-Qaeda is just right back in it. It would be foolish to think that this is the only guy 
just chilling in the middle of Kabul. And, uh, you know, this is the problem with not having that kind of presence is um, as much as tech is superseded a lot of, you know, shoe leather intelligence and things like that. We, we've lost monitoring capabilities in this country. So clearly they knew where this guy was or they had found him or there was intelligence that led to him. And Kirby said, we'll just ask Al Qaeda how safe they feel tonight. Well, taking out one, you know, 72 year old man is, is good and symbolic. But again, you're crazy if you think that this is the only guy that's just running around with the Taliban in Kabul. The other interesting thing that came out of this, and like I said, if anyone else wants to chip in here, add to this, or if you have background in all this stuff, feel free to jump up, is you're also seeing this from the New York Times, and you're seeing this from a few reporters as well. They're acknowledging that it looks like Al-Qaeda's back in, in Afghanistan and having a party, but they don't go any farther than that. It's, it's almost like they're mystified. It's almost like uh, David Burge's Iowa Hawk blog was noticing the coverage of Sri Lanka when Sri Lanka fell, we heard that it fell and we got all the images, but the media didn't want to talk about why it happened. And this is very, very similar. Here's the New York Times. Al Zahari's deputies were also picked off. Abu al Qahir al-Masari was killed by a U.S. drone strike in Syria in 2017. A successor, Abdullah Ahmed Abdallah, who went by the nom de guerre Abu Muhammad al-Masari, was killed uh, by Israeli operatives in Tehran in 2020. That's good. In 2021, nearly 20 years after the United States invaded Afghanistan, to drive al-Qaeda out, the Taliban retook control of the country and gave its ally al-Qaeda safe haven. And al-Zawahiri duly returned. Huh. Well, that's an interesting one, isn't it? So they're telling us this happened, um, but they won't go any farther than that. Uh, I'm going to find this other one. Uh, reporter from New York Times. Da, 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 da. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? It's in one of my... One of my clips here. Uh, come on. Sorry again for the dead air. Uh, I really need to get some theme music. Here it is. It's Rukmi Kalamachi, who's for the New York Times. She blocked me, so I had to find the screenshot. I have no idea why this woman blocked me, by the way. Uh, I always thought she was pretty good in this realm. She said, uh, tweeting last night, we were expecting Zawahiri to be killed at some point. It's the fact that he was killed in Kabul, not even the Afghanistan countryside. But the country's teeming capital that is truly newsworthy, it speaks volumes about the group's positioning two decades after 9-11. Uh, please elaborate on that one, <laughs> Ms. Kalamaki. I think you should. We would, uh, we would love that. We would love if you could elaborate what that means. Um, and this is why this is fascinating to me, because we're coming up on the anniversary, like uh, Desiderio said, uh, of the Afghanistan withdrawal, which, you know, they can push historic, you know, historic airlifts and history and very historic and how everything went as planned and everything was even to be expected. Um, but that's where Joe Biden's presidency started to go down the toilet and he hasn't recovered. Um, he's recovered two percentage points in the last week. It's the first time he's uh, ha had a positive other than his two COVID tests pretty much for the last year. And uh, this idea that we're coming up on this anniversary and the administration is going to try and push this. I think a lot of people like myself, and I think that you guys out there are pretty intelligent as well, are going to look at this very same question, which was why was again, the leader of Al Qaeda just party, partying it down in Kabul. And so this obviously with Joe Biden there and, you know, not wanting to cause any more international incidents, whatever um, this, could lead to very, very bad things again. Um, and pretty much with an American public and a media that doesn't want U.S. troops back in Afghanistan, um, the question becomes, what, what do we do? Are we just going to keep drone striking these guys? Uh, maybe, but that's assuming we know where they are and we know who they are. And if they're operating again with the cover of the Taliban, again, we saw where this all went. So, uh, just some interesting observations about that uh, today. Uh, I'm going to look at some comments here. No, there's no callers there, Free Outlet. Uh, SEAL Team 3000 says, I got blocked by Taylor Lorenz without adding her once. Well, yeah, that's whatever. Chad Stedman says, I need multiple monitors. <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not quite that nuts. Uh, also, Josh D notes, we're also barely hearing a peep about the European farmers. 
whatever. Um, Teal Tim says there's no random music playing in the background. Not yet. So, um, again, this was kind of the lead story. There's a few other things out there also. We also had uh, John Stewart. And uh, Spectator wanted me to write about this. I don't know if I'm going to be able to because they said I'm traveling. I, may, I might try to do it on the airplane. We'll see. That's a sip of a, a good vodka tonic. I got kicked out of my hockey game last night. So this has already been a, a fun shit week uh, going on. I wasn't justified getting kicked out, by the way, as the refs. It's always the refs. Um, the PACT Act just passed, um, which it was always going to do. And again, we knew about the provision that they put into it to allocate spending. And the Republicans caught this in the bill and went, hold on. No, we're not doing this. We're not putting in $400 billion of money that's not going to this cause. And it was also the Pat Toomey amendment that caught this. Well, of course, John Stewart, who's done a lot of work with at least raising awareness for veterans issues, also Chicago, uh, New York Fire Department, New York Police, and getting people benefits, I think is genuinely good advocacy. I don't. I can't imagine too many people uh, who think that that's bad. But once again, John Stewart made this, was able to make this all about him. And that's the problem with John Stewart. Uh, whenever he inserts himself into these debates, whatever, it's always kind of about him. It's not about the veterans. It's not about the money. It's not about making sure they're cared for. And once again, that that was the case. And we saw kind of what Schumer did here. And we saw how the media treated this. So the PAC Act um, did pass just as I was kind of coming on. And, uh, if you guys want just kind of a good breakdown of all of this, AG Hamilton on Twitter at AG Hamilton 29, uh, who's a good Twitter follower. If you haven't followed him, he's, he's, um, had a good breakdown of all of this in a way that our media of course did not do it. Well, why did Schumer do this? And why did John Stewart do this? It's similar to Jimmy Kimmel talking gun control. Well, here's the reason. Post-politics, Washington Post, Republicans reverse course as Senate burn pits legislation uh, passes, uh, Senate passes burn pits legislation after days of pressure. It's very subtle what the Washington Post is doing here, but that's why they did it. So they could get these headlines that Republicans hate veterans. I don't want to see veterans taken care of because it's their wars that led to all of this and they hate veterans and they're going to take away your Medicaid and they're going to take away veterans' benefits and they're going to... Which is always the Democrats' only card that they have. So Schumer basically put this on the floor to a lot of surprise. He tried to get it in there with uh, the allocated spending. They caught it and said, well, we're not going to vote. We're not voting on this as is. They voted it down. And then, of course, John Stewart made his rounds because the media cannot resist John Stewart. As I've said, um, no one person in this country is more responsible for the poisoning of the information discourse than John Stewart. And I would argue it's also the media who propped him up. And this is why today I, I don't put much, uh, I don't put much energy or uh, genuine thoughts into the misinformation debate, because for years our media held John Stewart up as the paragon of, uh, of news gathering. Oh, he's doing what we wish we could do. And that's all it was, is reporters had standards and they had to, you know, not show bias and they had to do all of these things. But John Stewart was able to go out and do and say the things they really wanted to. And that's how John Stewart basically became, you know, this huge media sensation that he was. If you were on Twitter from the years... 2012 to 2015, while Stewart had his show, uh, every day you you were getting blasted with clips of the Daily Show, and John Stewart destroys you know whoever. There's nothing left of this person. John Stewart has obliterated them. They have uh, shot him off the face of the earth. John Stewart uh, just takes a wrecking ball to whatever. John Boehner's smoking habit, whatever it was, and that was a lot of the content driving. So media would use clips of The Daily Show and they would embed them or they would NBC would report on what's on The Daily Show. And then those clips would drive revenue, of course, to NBC. So John Stewart was a cash machine for these people for so many years. And we saw what the effect of that had. This is someone who, you know, he would he would do the clown nose on, clown nose off act. Uh, he would manipulate interviews. He would uh, cut interviews. And as I stated, um, 
back when I had my own run-in with The Daily Show with the Wonder Woman screening, The Daily Show got in contact with me, and it was really funny how they present themselves. Hey, Stephen, hey, could, big fan on Twitter. Hey, we're covering this whole thing with the Wonder Woman, and we're wondering if we could chat with the camera crew to you know, document your day and da-da-da-da-da. And I'm like, you guys must think that I'm someone different because I grew up watching The Daily Show. I know exactly what you guys are going to do. So I posted his email and I said, hard pass. He, uh, the, the producer then got back with me and said, hey, I came to you with good faith effort. Do you mind taking down the email? Uh, you know, is just in journalism, whatever. And I just said, nope, I'm not taking it down. Thanks. Um, but that was basically you had someone who just trafficked constantly in purposeful misinformation through, you know, comedy, granted. And that's why I don't really put too much stock in that because it was a comedy show, but then Jon Stewart would take off the clown nose and suddenly he's our national conscience. Um, Basically, how we ended up at Donald Trump with our media has a lot to do with how they, you know, revered Jon Stewart and how they held him up. Because you had suddenly every journalist in the country wanted to be Jon Stewart and all of Jon Stewart's people wanted to be journalists. And so if you go back to those years, people like Glenn Thrush and Dave Weigel and uh, a lot of Vox people and a lot of younger reporters, um, you still see that a lot today. Uh, They were pretty much educated through years of watching The Daily Show. And so what we saw today, what we saw over this weekend and what we saw with Jon Stewart was kind of classic with Schumer is uh, you poison the bill. The, the Republicans notice, and then John Stewart, who will who will take all of the limelight and suck all of the oxygen out of the debate, uh, the media just runs to him. And so we saw him making rounds on CNN, and he even was on Fox, and he was on ABC, and he was on NBC, and uh, no one really challenged his basic assertion of uh, that th- this Republicans are just don't want to vote on this because they want to see dead veterans. Good luck selling that one. Um, what was interesting... And I think the angle I would love to take on Jon Stewart is why John Carl is maybe the worst person working on television right now. Uh, I'm not, I'm not even going to go into CNN host because it seems like some of them are packing their bags and leaving out the door. Uh, John Carl, who, uh, you know, he's made now two bestsellers off the Trump administration and his time there. Um, as I said, media members cashing in on the Trump years, you have a hard time selling us that this is actually about democracy when we see you raking in money and money and dollars and dollars. I see Chuck Chavez says uh, the refusal of Tom Nichols to say there's another one who's cashed in and made a career off of Donald Trump. But John's, uh, John Carl, who uh, he was the first out of the gate when Kevin McCarthy re- responded to this air, this drone strike in Afghanistan, uh, Kevin McCarthy said, yeah, we're, this was great. It was a good move by the Biden administration. He deserves credit. And oh, by the way, we're going to look into why the hell this guy was just chilling on a balcony in Kabul, by the way. John Carl framed that instantly as Republicans pouncing, saying, oh, they're going to do it. And uh, as I noted, there's not even an ounce of curiosity about this. And this is what, and this is what I mean about how it's going to be Benghazi'd, which is re- the press is not going to investigate what this guy was doing in Kabul. Uh, They might opine on it a little bit, um, but when there's possible hearings about this, intelligence hearings where we say, you know, you're going to have Jim Jordan or you're going to have senators and they're going to be asking questions about, you know, how long was this? How long did you know this guy was there? Did he just roll in the day after we left and have they been planning? And you're going to see the media say they're trying to undermine Biden's, you know, a great accomplishment by Biden. And as we saw with, you know, the Benghazi being written in vertical text on Twitter, that's what they're going to do. They're going to do the very same thing with this. Um, I know I'm kind of just jumping all around here and I kind of lost my turn of thought. But John Carl was the first one to jump in and say, oh, Republicans are pouncing. John Carl over the weekend had John Stewart on his show. And I kind of got like that Kurt Schlichter eye twitch where I wanted to boil my face. Because John Carl's sitting here and he's got his grin on. And that's what I mean. Like when John Stewart is in their presence, they are genuinely in awe of him. And like I said, it's, it comes down to one basic fact that John Stewart can say the things that they can't. Although I would argue that they think they can now uh, with a lot of, you know, the mask slippage of Trump and January 6th and everything of that nature. And John Carl proceeds to ask John Stewart, have you ever thought of running for office? He, he said, you said it in the past and you've mentioned it and whatever. 
And John Carl says, you know, there's a precedent now with a comedian becoming president of a country. You could be, you know, you could be our Zelensky. And I don't think my eyes could have rolled out of my skull any harder unless someone was there to do it. You could have hit me upside the head with a hockey stick and it, and it wouldn't have, you wouldn't have needed to. I, I would have just here you go and whatever. And I thought, this is the kind of shit where I like, how are you guys so fucking obtuse to how we got Donald Trump? How do you not see it? Well, they don't see it because they don't think that they played any role in it. They don't think that they played any role in giving him $5 billion of unearned airtime and airing his empty podiums for hours upon end and giving him free reign on their shows and giving him hour-long interviews while the debates were happening or giving him 41 phone call interviews. Uh, I'm sorry, 41 total interviews, 30, uh, 10 of those were call-ins by Morning Joe. And here you have these fucking people who haven't learned a thing. They have not learned a thing. And that goes back into my piece that I wrote for Examiner about why it's pretty much if, if Trump is to be stopped and if people want him stopped, it's going to have to be up to the Republican voters and no one else. Because you, you will see our media slip back into exactly what they did in 2016. Uh, they'll, just, they'll, they'll just use it as the 2020 election and they'll give Donald Trump any microphone that they can for Trump to keep talking about a rigged and stolen elections. And it was moments like this with Jon Stewart where, you know, John Carl is hailing him as the next Zelensky. And I just, again, I, 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 want, I wanted to just put my head in the microwave because, again, these people either don't know what they're doing or they do know. And it's a cancer. It's a cancer in the country and it's a cancer in our media. And. Uh, I, I was gen I was in genuine awe that that had happened, not because it surprised me, because that's who John Carl is, um, but this idea that, you know, we, we want you to run in 2024. And we also had, I believe it was an article at The Atlantic um, pressuring John Stewart to run in 2024. Let me see if I can pull this up. Uh, John Stewart, 2024, Atlantic. I'm pretty sure it was The Atlantic that had this. Um, maybe not. I might have just trafficked in disinformation. Um, oh, it's Politico. If Tucker runs in 2024, it's John Stewart is a better fit than most politicians for what mo modern politics have become. And it's Juliana Glover. And it's this trollish kind of media. And Bill Crystal does this a lot, obviously. Um, it's this trollish kind of media where you just have to sit back in awe. And, and as I said, say, uh, is this how, do you want more Donald Trump? Because this kind of shit is how you get more of him. And of course, these are the people who will lament, you know, the end of democracy should that happen or whatever. And yet they're out here pushing uh, a cynical has-been comedian uh, as, I guess, our next savior. Um, this bill, this PAC Act, was always going to pass with or without Jon Stewart's theater and with or without Chuck Schumer's theater, it was always going to pass. Um, but as someone noted on Twitter shortly before it came on, we're really glad to see that Jon Stewart made this all about himself. And that uh, is a shame. It's a shame for our politics. It's a shame for our media. And uh, again, we know the reason why Schumer did it is because he knew he was going to have the media in his pocket, just the same as why Marks Bay fake handcuffed herself. She knew that the media would bite on photographs and they did. It was, ironically, ABC News that, that was the, who were the ones that bit the most on this, and that was John Carl's ABC News. So those are obviously the two big things that started this week. We also had Pelosi being a good girl and following through on her promise to land in Taiwan. And uh, I, I'd never thought in, the, in all of my years on Twitter that I would be unironically retweeting Nancy Pelosi, who made a couple of good statements about this. And I've given her credit in the past where she was, you know, she went to commemorate Tiananmen Square and pulled out the banner. And I thought that that was really great. This is what we need more of from our politicians on a world stage. And I know that there's reports out there about this was a staged thing of what to do with NVIDIA and her and her stocks and whatever. And she's, and she's visiting production plants that she just bought stocks in. And I have to just fucking tell you, I don't care about any of that. I really don't. Yeah, she's corrupt. We know she's corrupt. She's also probably going to be dead in three or four years. Okay. Especially now, because they probably poisoned her. Um, and so I have to say to all of that, I, I simply don't care. 
the photo op of her standing in Taiwan is important enough, and it's especially important in these times when it appears Joe Biden is catering to every single fucking thing that the Chinese want from him. Uh, it was interesting, again, John Kirby said about Pelosi that, oh, no, we don't know. She's doing her own thing out there. You have to shoot her down. She knew the risks. You know, that's just whatever. That was obviously Karine Jean-Pierre. And that's also why I think Kirby stepped in on this thing in, in Afghanistan is because this woman just puts her foot in her own mouth um, more more times than a San Francisco gay orgy. Um, and so you you have Biden who seems to go very easy. Biden does not seem interested in finding a, a uh, investigation into the origins of COVID. He, he's almost like thankful to Xi that he caught it. <laughs> thanks, thanks. I don't have to go out now. You saved me. Every time, every time he has one of his bad days, they can just go, Oh, it's COVID. He's, he's back in isolation for a while. Oh no, we'll see him. It's a, it's a Paxlovid. That's what did it to him. Yeah, no, I know. I know, but he's doing really well. Did you see? He's having the best week of his whole presidency. That was an actual article from someone who's, I think it's the Washington Post, Ashley Parker, who wrote, uh, Joe Biden's doing great working from home. It's like, what do you expect? That's how you fucking people elected him. He didn't leave his house. <laughs> so wh- why? Of course. Um, so now they have the excuse. But you have someone who, again, whose family has ties to Chinese business associates. And let's just say it's probably not the most trusted one. Uh, the crack addict son who just leaves his fucking laptop laying around Russian hotel rooms um, and uh, playing role play with escorts that may or may not be of age. So this is where, again, Hunter Biden's ties to China and the money that's been exchanged through China comes into play. And it's a real concern. And it's something that, again, I think the Republicans are going to investigate and it's going to turn into you can't do that. That's political opponents. Uh uh-uh. uh. You tried to charge Donald Trump, so all bets are off. So uh, that that's, again, kind of the, the rundown, the three things that we saw happen this week. Um, I, I have serious questions about uh, taking this guy out in uh, the capital city, and it sure looks like al-Qaeda is being harbored once again by the Taliban. And as, you know, to kind of wrap up my monologuing here, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. Um, I'll probably, if you guys want, if anyone wants to jump up, comments, questions, uh, I'll go ahead and take about 10 minutes worth, or I can just tell you why I got kicked out of my hockey game last night, which was bullshit. Um, so or I can tell you the, the, the wonderful story of just my entire unit just going up to 85 degrees. So, um, I'll, I'll hang out for a minute or two. Uh, if anyone has any comments on what we saw with Pelosi, uh, this drone strike taking out, uh, Godfather of Al-Qaeda. Or, of course, John Stewart. Um, feel free to weigh in, give me comments, give me questions, or you can sit there and continue to listen to me sip on a lovely uh, vodka tonic. I guess I'll look at comments here. Uh, the, Chuck Chaz says, The refusal of Tom Nichols to say anything about Taiwan and Pelosi visit speaks volumes. Well, he did say something. And as I said, I don't like to give people undue attention uh, on the podcast, and there's several of them. Um, I I don't think Nichols is a particularly uh, influential person in media, but he makes the rounds. And uh, so he did. He said last night, quote, Twitter, honestly, I have no idea why Pelosi is doing this or what she thinks it will accomplish. And I'm not as concerned about Ukraine as Friedman, but I don't know what the point of this trip is, especially at a time when Biden is already having to juggle multiple crises. So again, Nichols frames this very much the same way as the rest of our media does. It's something being happening to Joe Biden, something that is um, being done to him and multiple crises. Well, Afghanistan uh, was, hold on. Afghanistan was one that was completely of his doing. Uh, no, No advisors or anything uh, we're advocating him go ahead and get out of Afghanistan or what have you. So let me see, Josh, you're distracting me. Hold on. Private. Nope. Everybody. Oh, nope. Everyone can call in. Damn it, Josh. Um, and so what's interesting is, uh, this thing with Nichols to me is very interesting in the sense of, uh, this is someone who, again, is uh, who fancies himself a foreign policy expert and fancies himself a defender of democracy. 
And so it's not the end of the world that this is a guy who doesn't answer a very simple question, which is, do you believe that Taiwan is an autonomous country and a democracy? And what's telling is the ability to not want to answer that. And I've had people ask me, you know, why, why won't he? And as I've said, I think that he still thinks that he's going to, and don't laugh, wind up in a presidential cabinet sometime. And he doesn't want that screenshotted and passed around and that causing a problem at any confirmation hearings. That's genuinely what I think it is. Um, and I said, don't laugh, but that's genuinely what I think it really is that simple. Um, but this is also a question that everyone in our media should be able to answer is what, what do you believe? We saw Thomas Friedman 10 days ago on the New York Times, what I was wrong about. I was wrong about Chinese censorship. That's great. Thanks, Tom. Uh, yesterday, August 1st, why Pelosi's visit to Taiwan is utterly reckless. And the fact that our smooth brain elite global class, and I hate using Soros type terms like that, but that's what they are, can't make that fucking connection when just about anyone else with two brain cells fighting to see who wins in their head can make that connection. One is directly related to the other. Um, and so I find it interesting, the hesitation on this. And uh, I don't have a problem saying that Taiwan is a country. I'll probably never get to visit Beijing in my life. That's pretty much assured. Um, but I said it on national TV that Taiwan is a democracy. It is a country worth defending. And of course, that gets down to how, how far are you willing to defend it? Well, I would ask, as far as Joe Biden apparently is willing to defend it militarily, um, I did watch Tucker Carlson's monologue, and I found it ironic that uh, Tucker Carlson and Tom Nichols are almost in complete alignment on this issue. It was, it was hilarious to me. I think Tucker Carlson makes a lot of good points about what a war with China would look like. It would look very bad. It would look like economic warfare where they would just shut down large parts of our economy. And I guess maybe then we'll learn the lesson that, hey, we shouldn't be selling large swaths of land to them or turning over our Hollywood culture to them um, or our supply chain. We learned that fucking lesson. And given the tepid response of the world on COVID, does anybody seriously fucking think anyone would step in to stop it? China got away with killing 16 million people and the, the UN, I don't think, even convened on it. <laughs> they didn't lose a single uh, committee ship at the UN over it. You could argue that they actually gained influence. Um, the only thing that I saw that was of note where I kind of became optimistic about, you know, neutralizing China possibly is the fact that uh, Maverick decided to put the Taiwan flag back on the jacket. It's funny because I told people to say, you really weren't going to see that movie over that. And I was like, yeah, I really wasn't. <laughs> it's my little contribution to that. I don't have to participate in this. Um, two other quick things. Uh, and if I don't get any calls in 10 minutes, we're probably just going to call it a night. Uh, DeSantis's people really are kind of on a roll lately. Uh, if you saw today, the, uh, the view invited DeSantis on. And I want to pull this up. I have another thing from Jeremy Redfern, who's uh, the press secretary, press secretary for the uh, Healthy Florida, and I believe the Surgeon General. Jeremy sometimes drops, pops in here. Um, so maybe he's even in there. But we saw that DeSantis was invited on The View, and they basically turned him down in a great email. And like I said, I need to find it. So give me one moment. Uh, here it is. Brian Griffin, he said DeSantis was invited onto The View. And when you talk about comms professionals, Republican comms people, and, and, and I know we've discussed this both on the podcast and here about this is a new generation of comms professional strategists. These are people who are younger. They've come up online. They've come up on social media. They've come up with dealing with journalists on social media. And as I've always said, and you guys know it, I, I say don't ever talk to journalists unless it's your job in which case you get everything in writing and then you post it. We have two cases of that from, and both, I mean, are coming from DeSantis's people. So it's not necessarily about him. It's about the people that are working for him and how kind of smooth they are with this stuff. Ryan Griffin, who uh, said today that uh, he's, he's a deputy press secretary for Ron DeSantis, said that they were invited to come onto The View. He said, uh, quote, the View, the View emailed our office on Friday asking for us to arrange an appearance from Governor DeSantis on the show. Quote, we would be very honored. 
Um, here's, here's the response. And this comes back into the whole new war on media that we're talking about and how, you know, they're going to come to regret this. Here's the response. Thanks for the invite. I understand that you are sending this request on behalf of your team, but the hosts, uh, of the, uh, but are the hosts of the view interested in hearing from governor DeSantis about all the important work he's doing on behalf of Floridians to protect their health and livelihoods, to stand up for parents and children and to defend freedom. Which of the below statements from the host of The View do you recommend our team consider when deciding if the interview will be a genuine pursuit of truth or worth our time? Joy Behar, August 21st, quote, you're just short of calling Governor DeSantis a negligent homicidal sociopath because that's what he is. She added, quote, what is he doing? He's risking the lives of children, children's parents, their grandparents, anyone they may come into contact with so he can appeal to his white supremacist base so he can continue his career and get reelected. He then lists Sonny Hostin, June 22nd, uh, June of 2022, quote, Death Santis. I think it's a fascist. I think he's a fascist and a bigot. <laughs> Short and to the point. I like that. Anna Navarro, April of 20, uh, 2022, on Governor DeSantis' policy, quote, it's anti-black, it's anti-gay, it's anti-LGBT community, and for some reason, the Republican base responds to it. And it's anti-American is what happens in Venezuela. That's what happens in Nicaragua. Sonny Hostin, February 2022, quote, it started with critical race theory. Let's remember that. And those are anti-history laws, anti-black history laws, really. If you start coming after black people, what comes next? Of course, the LBT community and then women and other marginalized groups. Brian uh, wraps up the email by saying, we will pass on this offer. Also, please note, we don't coordinate appearances or events of a political nature from the official office. Our role is to serve the people of Florida. Um, These are people who know their shit. And it's refreshing to see this is they've clearly kept these statements on hold. And then they looked it up. They didn't just say, we'll get back to you uh, or, hey, let's look at this and let's maybe try to work something out. What do you think? Um, they clearly know their shit and whether or not they're working for a politician and they're going to spin, obviously, DeSantis' stuff. Um, but it's good. Jeremy Redfern, who I just mentioned, and like I said, Jeremy likes to sometimes pop his head in here. So if he's out there, um, I'll bring him up and he can talk about this. He got a uh, request from a reporter named uh, Brianna Ellis from the assignment desk of WKMG TV6, CBS Orlando. She says, good morning. Hearing that Florida Department of Health has released the proposed rule that would ban access to gender affirming care for people under the age of 18. Can you confirm this? Do you have a press release you can share with us about this? And if you notice what she did there. She slipped in the gender-affirming care, which is the terminology that our media started running with as soon as they knew that if they start backing things like puberty blockers and mastectomies for minors, um, that they have a problem. So they did what they always do. They just simply changed the definition of what that is. They changed the language. It's their oldest trick in the book. And, of course, our media falls right in line with it. We saw that with Don't Say Gay. And we saw uh, in an exchange of mine with one of the reporters from the Florida Sun Sentinel, where he simply they, he simply admitted the reason they say it is because it's good marketing. Not whether it's true, just, hey, they came up with a good slogan, don't say gay, it rhymes. <laughs> and they don't care really what the truth is. Here's Jeremy's response. And a few responses in this back and forth. It says, I'm not sure what you mean by gender-affirming care. Can you please define? <laughs> she responds to him. HHS defines gender-affirming care as a supportive form of health care consisting of an array of services that may include medical, surgical, mental health, and non-medical services for transgender and non-binary people. This is cited in footnote three of the petition to which I'm referring. The petition we're looking for is titled Petition to Initiate Rulemaking Settling the Standard of Care for Treatment of Gender Dysphoria. It was filed this morning, and we're hoping to receive a copy from F. Florida Department of Health to verify the information we have is correct. Jeremy wrote back, By gender-affirming care, in quotes, you mean puberty blockers, hormone treatments, and double mastectomies for young teenage girls, correct? (laughs) She writes back, uh, this now looks like it's gone to the assignment desk. So she's now now pulled in the big guns and said, I'm having a problem with this. Says, I'm looking for the petition to initiate rulemaking settling for the standard of care for treatment of gender dysphoria. It was filed this morning, and it says, can you define gender-affirming care? So I can respond to your inquiry. Uh, And Redfern does a whole Twitter thread on this. So then they simply write back again. HHS defines gender-affirming care as supported. They write the exact same paragraph, and now it's from the assignment desk. 
Jeremy simply writes back again, by gender-affirming care, do you mean puberty blockers, hormone treatments, double mastectomies for young teenage girls? Is that correct? And they kept going with this. Uh, he notes that they had a, uh, a, a hard time uh, responding to him. So they actually, again, respond this way. Thank you for taking the time to respond several times to our one inquiry for a document. <laughs> I believe we've seen sufficient in our request by asking for the document by name. I'm not sure what you are getting at by asking our assignment editor their personal opinion on the term gender-affirming care. Uh, jumping in here, if you notice, and uh, Jeremy, I think, addresses this, watch what they just did there. I'll read it again. It says, I'm not sure what you're getting at by asking our assignment editor their personal opinion on the term gender-affirming care. How many of you caught that? He's not asking for the personal opinion. The reporter themselves defined it as an HHS language. So he's simply asking for confirmation. Like, what are you talking? What do you mean by gender? What do you mean by gender-affirming care? He's not asking for an opinion. He's asking for their definition. He says, we have simply asked for the document by its official petition name, which I'm, again, doing so at this time. Can you or someone else within the Florida Department of Health provide to us the document entitled Petition? If you cannot, please explain why. Thank you again for taking the time to respond. Have a wonderful day. Here's Jeremy's response. I'm not asking for any personal opinion. I'm asking why you referred to it as gender-affirming care. Instead of using an objective term such as double mastectomies for children with gender dysphoria, so I ask again, are you talking about the document that proposes restrictions on treating gender dysphoria with puberty blockers, hormone treatments, and surgeries such as double mastectomies on children? If so, I can easily point you in the right direction. Jeremy then notes they suddenly uh, went and backpedaled. Jeremy, thank you for filling my request. So Jeremy sends them to a public document, says it's right online. You can go find it. It's on the website. There it is. And they write him back saying, can you give us the, can you point us to the exact page? And he's like, no, you can go find it. It's right there. Just read down. You'll get to it. And I, I, I was actually, I think, my favorite part of the exchange. Like, are you a fucking journalist? Go do some reading. Okay. You might learn something. Uh, it's it's some, the same thing John Carl did when John Carl attacked Kevin McCarthy. And I, and I replied to him with the clip of Biden's comments saying, now that Al-Qaeda is gone from Afghanistan, I'm like, do you do any research journalism before you fire off fucking tweets? Like, what, what is it that you do here, John? Jeremy says, uh, you're, uh, says, Newsroom, thank you for filling my request. For the record, since we have not reported anything on the story today or regarding this document on air, we have not used the phrase you were referring to. Thank you and have a wonderful day. Jeremy replies, your newsroom said, Hearing that Florida Department of Health has released the proposed rule that would ban access to gender-affirming care for people under the age of 18. So that contradicts the statement that we have not used this phrase you're referring to. Jeremy also went ahead and found them using the phrase. And it says, that is correct in regards to an initial record request. That phrase was used and then removed upon further communication with you. The phrase, however, has not been used for story reporting. Jeremy Richmond replies, your newsroom's use of the phrase is now public record. Um, this is a thorough and direct precision strike against activist journalism. And this is pretty much how every single comm shop on the political right needs to be paying attention to. We saw Ron Johnson's press secretary. I don't know how many of you saw this, where she gave a comment to a reporter and gave them the documents and then bitched about how the story against Ron Johnson was framed. Uh, I don't have that tab open, but I, I did have it in, the, in regards to what you should do and what you should not do in these situations. And both Griffin and Redfern handle this exactly how you're supposed to handle this. They, they have their, uh, their spidey senses on full alert at all times. And more comm shops really should be learning from them on this kind of thing. So just a couple of uh, fun things that we saw uh, from, again, the, the, the wonderful people in Ron DeSantis' comm shop. So we're, we're hitting 7 o'clock. So, again, that's kind of one hour in. Uh, if I don't have anyone calling, and, again, Josh D. is still kind of making me paranoid here um, that I've somehow shut this off. And it says, no, no, how about I change this? Let's do this. Limited. Only allow participants with an invite link to call in. Well, that could be you guys. I'll change it back to public. So 
I've done that. So I guess I will wait a second. And I see some of your faces out there. So, uh, and some of you I know can get in touch with me if you're having a problem calling in with this, or maybe you're just not feeling talkative tonight. I'm not either. Um, again, I had a late night and I got kicked out of my game and I shouldn't have because the refs suck. So if I don't see anyone jumping up here, uh, I'm going to call it and, uh, <laughs> I'm going to call it uncommon. Funny. Um, and like I said, I do apologize for not being able to kind of just record a traditional podcast. You're getting kind of a behind the scenes thing about how I do this, <laughs> except I normally just stop and start and, and over record and overdub. So this was kind of just a, a fly by the seat of your pants, uh, thing. So again, I apologize for having to do that. Um, but I wanted to at least just not bail and say, Oh, I'm taking the night off. Sorry. Thanks maintenance. Um, so again, I at least wanted to jump on here, give you guys some content, um, and, uh, at least have a podcast in some sort of the, the way today. Um, I will be, um, I will be on tomorrow afternoon, although I probably won't be able to move again because I have my training session again tomorrow. Um, so I will be on afternoon if all goes right. And as I said, that will be the only podcast for the week, uh, as I will be traveling, um, and uh, so I will be traveling Thursday through the weekend, and, I, and I'll be back on Tuesday. So, so I'm getting texts from people who are like, no, it's trying. I don't know. Whatever. Thanks, Kate. Um, so I will have one podcast tomorrow. Again, leave your comments, questions there. Maybe, maybe Colin's being buggy or just everyone's just wanting to listen to my soothing voice tonight or whatever. So, again, thanks, everyone, for uh, at least coming in to listen tonight. Um, to just this kind of quick rundown, news of the week, the kind of things that were happening. And uh, again, it's, it's glad this Al-Qaeda dude's gone. It's, uh, it's, it's success. Uh, the Biden administration should treat it as such, especially considering, you know, the old man's record with things like this. Um, but again, I think that there's a lot of important questions left, and I don't think that we should be afraid to ask those questions. Like I said, we'll see. Um, I'm Stephen O'Miller. This has been Versus Media Live on Call-In. Uh, you should know that because they're not actually paying for this one. This is free. Anyone can kind of jump in and join and uh, leave your comments and uh, uh, be interactive, which no one's really wanting to be interactive tonight. So that's okay. Um, again, I'll be on Patreon tomorrow. You can always, uh, of course, get me on Red Steez. Uh, thank you for joining this room. Uh, we had a good crowd tonight, kind of impromptu. And uh, I will see you tomorrow on Patreon. Cheers, everyone.